Today we're continuing our current teaching series. We started a few weeks ago entitled Amplify, and if you're just joining us for the first time or maybe the first time in a while, allow me to catch you up to speed with where we've been. So here we go. Two weeks ago, we formally made one of probably, uh, maybe this is overdoing it, but that's just kind of my personality, but anyways, uh, we made one of the most significant announcements in the history of Clarity Church, and this announcement really shouldn't be of any kind of surprise to any of you who've been part of this local fellowship of believers for any length of time, particularly those of you who've been part of the beginning. And since the beginning, right, we've had a vision to engage in being disciples who make disciples, okay? So since the beginning, we wanted to be disciples, but we also wanted to make disciples, and we thought that doing this, and the reason why you start a church is because um, you have bold and gospel-inspired faith. In fact, we used to call this, uh, we, we used to have like a whole value sheet. We used to, like, it was very corporate america but whatever, it was, at least it was clear. We used to have this uh, value that we called, everyone remember, it's called audacious faith, right? We used to talk about this idea of audacious faith. But at the end of the day, the heart behind that phrase, audacious faith, was simply this. We believed that it takes bold faith. It takes risky faith to walk into obedience towards the things that God has asked us to do, right? There's a reason why Jesus said, unless you are willing to give up your life, he who, is, who, he, he who tries to save his life will what? Lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, Right? And so there's all this phraseology all through the New Testament. And so we've always believed that. In other words, the vision of this church, the whole reason why we even started a new church, was so that more and more people who are disconnected from God and from a local fellowship would experience, believe in, and live out the gospel of Jesus with clarity. I, I should say that again just in case I think we forget. We can get caught up in the rhythms. And, uh, I, and I know more. And I feel like I know most of you, and I know that you believe this, and that's why you're here, because you want to be a part of a church that is committed to seeing more and more people who are disconnected from God experience, be given the chance to choose, believe in, and live out the gospel of Jesus with clarity. There's obviously a play on words there. We want them to do it with us, but if they don't do it with us, regardless, we want the gospel of Jesus to be experienced with clarity. And so over the past eight years, God has accomplished amazing things in various seasons of our church's life that could only be accomplished by his sovereignty and his power. Now we believe that God is leading us into a new season, a new chapter. And while there really is still much work to do regarding what it means to continue to grow in our faithfulness as a church to being disciples and making disciples, in growing in what it means to uh, as we've more recently stated, repurposing our rhythms to live life as family on mission together with God. While there's still much work to do there, what is clear is that we cannot pursue a vibrant future without investing in a place in this community. And so we need a launching pad of ministry. I've said this over the past week. We need a launching pad for ministry that allows us to have thriving kids ministry, to have a thriving youth ministry. We need to have a launching pad for ministry that lets our community know that we are here to stay because nothing communicates uh, that more than when a church does more than just set up shop in a community like a food truck does at the local brewery. 
but proves ownership of being part of the community by becoming owners in a community. And in light of that, our hope is that we can purchase an existing facility within the next three to five years and repurpose it for ministry. We're not against buying land and building whatever, whatnot, but that, that cost is just exorbitantly more. And also the timeline for that process is usually a lot longer. Uh, and not, we're not against that, but we're also seeing that there's just a lot more opportunities of already existing facilities. And it kind of falls in line with the whole in, visioning that we've had this idea of like, what does it mean to repurpose, to reorient our lives? And so why would we not want to repurpose the things that are already in existence? And we live in Brooklyn Park. Um, you know, this, this, our, our, you know, this community kind of centers around this area, and a lot of this area is already landlocked. If you drive around, there's not much land to be sold, and I'm not interested in uh, starting a church in Ely or whatever where there's, <laughs> where there's more land or I don't know, like um, Farmington or Lakeville or whatever. I don't know what there's around here that has a lot more land. So that's all super far away. Notice I picked those places. Um, and so what we have done is we've set a goal to raise $320,000 in additional giving. $320,000, that's the big thing that I was talking about. Over a three-year period because we believe that $320,000 or something like that would allow us to purchase a facility uh, potentially with a small loan. And because Jesus modeled that the life of obedience to God rarely goes through the path of pursuing comfort and safety, remember we talked about this last week, we believe that this journey will require hard work and sacrifice. That's why the ultimate goal is not about a building. Nobody really wants to work hard for brick and mortar. I don't, I'll be honest. Like, I work hard you know, for my kids and all that kind of stuff. And, but, you know, brick and mortar, you're not, it doesn't really, makes anyone excited. Because it's not about that. It's not even about raising a certain amount of money. What we're trying to do together is prove that the same Jesus who saved us and is one with the Father is the same Jesus that lives in our heart, that prayed to the Father, as we talked about in week one, who said, Father in heaven, make them what? one as we are one. And so this is an opportunity for us to prove that we are one. So the ultimate goal is not about an amount. It's actually about 100% participation. That every person who considers Clarity Church a community of faith that God has called them to, right? and I can't tell that. I'm not bold enough to be like, you're one of my people, and you need to, and you should. Listen, God, by his spirit, has either brought you to us or he hasn't. And, they're, and, and, and everyone's in a different place in their journey. But if, if, if for some reason you consider this church your home and you would give me the honor of being your pastor, I humbly, but with conviction, ask that you would participate. That you would participate. That every person who considers clarity, a community of faith that God has called them to, I pray that you would be willing to engage in being a part of helping this church take bold steps of faith, just as that first group of people, back in the day when we started eight years ago, joined together, they put their time, their resources together. And in fact, I would probably say it's just as scary now because they didn't know what to expect. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, or, uh, some of them heard me preach a few times, but, you know, they, that could have been only just my two best sermons that I had in my pocket, and they didn't, they didn't know if I was even good at, at what, but they, but they believed that God was calling this to them, calling them to this, and so uh, here we are again, and we're, we're moving forward, and 
I'm asking you to engage in being part of helping this church take, church take bold steps of faith into seeing more and more people find Jesus, to follow Jesus and become disciples of Jesus who make disciples that makes disciples. Now, I know that phrase is redundant, disciples that make disciples and make disciples, but, but at least that's clear what we're trying to do, right? That's what we want. We want to be disciples that are making disciples that are making disciples that are making disciples. And so the question is, are you satisfied with the way your life looks right now as a disciple? Okay. Some of you might be able to check that off. Yeah, I'm reading God's word. I, my, me and God, we're good. And I feel like I'm praying and I feel like I'm acting. Okay. Are you making disciples? Some of you are like, ah, oh, yeah, I, I am. And like, okay. Okay. And, and are you making disciples that make disciples? And so that is our call, not just to be disciple, but to obey the great commission, which says to go, therefore, and make disciples, teaching them. And just in case you're worried that you won't have what it takes to do it, Jesus promises, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. And so we don't have to do it in our own power. We have God and his spirit with us. And it's by God's power that we can accomplish these things. Now, we're not the first ones to take bold steps of faith because when you read about the very first followers of Jesus, here is what you discover. Followers of Jesus have always been marked by radical generosity. In fact, if you're a Bible nerd and you heard me say Acts chapter 2, you already know where I'm going with this, right? Because it's, it's a quintessential place because why? It's, it's just unarguable. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, we read the stories of the first followers of Jesus and it's, a, it's, it's, it's the generosity displayed here is, is incredibly unique. But it's a generosity that's also difficult to explain. But let's look at this real quick. In Acts chapter 2, we see this attitude towards money and possessions that Jesus' early disciples displayed after like 3,000 people got saved. They were presented with the gospel and they understood clearly. In fact, it says that they were cut to the heart. And they asked Peter, oh, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. And then 3,000 got saved. And then in verse 44, it says this. It says, now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. Now, if you're a real Bible nerd, you'll know that there's different opinions on this extreme sense of generosity. Of course, there are uh, prosperity teachers who would take this verse and want to push you and I towards things that are unbiblical regarding what it means to, uh, you know, give up our money. There'll be guys on TV saying like, ah, we know you're in welfare and you're poor, but you know, give in faith, give what you don't have and God will give you what you need. And, and, and there's a lot of people who look at this and say, you know, well, this was a unique case because in the New Testament, when all the people got saved, when they heard the teaching that Jesus said, I will return, they literally believed that he was going to be returning probably that year. Like there, there's, and so the idea of selling all your stuff, in light, of, like if you knew Jesus was coming back at the end of this week, before next Sunday, wouldn't that kind of change the way you viewed your stuff? Like, wouldn't it change the way 
that you viewed what you had. If you were in a less than a week, it's all going to go, but God was going to hold you accountable with how you handle your stuff. That would change the way you thought. And so there's, there's some people who think like, oh, this is, ex- this is extreme case scenario because they all had a misunderstanding on Jesus that he was going to come back. And so they, they foolishly sold all their stuff. And they, but here is the overarching thing. Now, that's just, I'm giving you all the outlier understanding of this passage of Scripture if you were to read it. But for centuries and centuries, whether you are on the outlier or you find yourself more at the center or whatever, or whatever spectrum on the idea of interpreting this passage of Scripture, what you need to know is that everyone agrees on this. When the Spirit of God moves into the heart of people, generosity is birthed. Generosity is birthed. Why? Because when the church first started a couple thousand years ago, one of the main ways the world understood that Christians were different was actually because of their economic mindset. In a certain sense, the church had an economic culture that was drastically different than the culture around it. People shared what they had, they gave things away, and at the end of the day, they just seemed to be set free from being trapped by their stuff. Wherever the early church's life is described, you see a pattern of incredible generosity that in many ways was unreasonable to the outsider. People would look at this and think, we don't get this. Nobody gives away money like this without expecting something in return. Nobody is this generous. And the reason followers of Jesus were so different is that fundamentally the message of Jesus is a message of grace. Every other religious system is set up on morals, and good works, so it makes sense to get ahead as much as possible, because if God rewards your work, then you should probably be getting some things done, right? You should probably be accumulating some things that make you worth the, 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 the goodness of a higher being. But radical generosity is only the result of God's grace. Nobody becomes generous through guilt. They might be a giver, but they are not generous. Nobody becomes a generous person through manipulation. That's called just being manipulated, not being generous. Nobody becomes a generous person through coercion, right? That's that's unwillingly being given. That's getting robbed. But in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says this, for you have been saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift, not from works. Why? So that no one can boast. Grace is what revolutionizes people's attitude towards money and possessions. It gives us a new relationship with our stuff. And if you haven't experienced the grace of God in your life, then money can be a touchy subject. It really can. You get emotional about money, you get defensive about money, you get giddy when you save a dollar because of a coupon. (laughs) But if you have experienced the grace of God in your life, you still might get giddy over the coupon, but that's a different story. Listen, the forgiveness of your sins and your past and acceptance into God's family When you experience this kind of grace, then you begin to view money and possessions through a whole new 
lens. And so my question today is this. Have you experienced God's grace in your life? Like, you owe it to yourself. You're not, I'm not asking you to tell me yes or no. You owe it to yourself to ask yourself, like, self, have I, have I really experienced the grace of God in my life? Like, if you want to know, maybe ask yourself this. How has grace changed my attitude? How has grace changed my relationships? How has grace changed my worldview? How has grace changed my willingness to forgive? How has grace changed maybe the way I parent or how I interact with my loved ones, my spouse, my friends, my family? How has grace changed your marriage? How has grace changed your thinking? Now let me take a step further and ask you a very measurable question. I don't even know if that's a thing you can do, a measure question that can be measured, measure, measurable question, forget it, whatever. How has God's grace changed you in your giving, in the way that you handle your resources? And we could talk about like your thinking, how do you measure that? Uh, your forgiveness, well, I guess you can count the number of people you've forgiven as opposed to how much you used to not forgive people. But there's nothing that you can measure anything more than this idea of your giving and the way you handle your resources. Because all throughout the Bible, there is a theme that when somebody encounters the incredible, generous grace of God, it affects their generosity. Instead of getting defensive or emotional over the idea of giving, they are energized by it. And this is because they have found the words of Jesus to ring true, that it is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. Well, Jesus never really said that. That was just a quote that Paul made. Okay, if you want to go argue there, whatever, but read all the... This was the teaching of Jesus that all the early disciples believed, that Jesus said this. It is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. Acts 20.35, if someone wants to look it up. But anyways. Now, I get it that some people might feel stuck because you have experienced the grace of God in your life like, you'd, you'd be, I know some people might go like, listen, I have remarkably experienced the grace of God in my life, and I, 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 I value the relationship I have with God, and I experienced the forgiveness, and it's actually done a lot in my own life, and, I, and, and it's affected me, but it doesn't seem like it's affected your generosity. Now, if that's you, I'm not here to make you feel guilty about that, but if you're struggling with that, I think it's maybe because you might not have come to grips with some fundamental principles regarding God's grace. In fact, a lack of clarity <laughs> about these principles is what I've seen over and over and over and over again keep many people from being the kind of person who displays God's grace through what we would call biblical generosity. And so I just want to share just a couple of principles that you might want to think of if you find yourself like, I experienced God's grace, but I don't really see myself as being more generous now than I was before I experienced the grace of God. Or at least this year I haven't grown from last year and I've grown from the year before. Like, I don't see this growing sense of generosity. Like I would maybe hope to see that you've grown in your prayer life, you've grown in your study of God's word, you're, you're growing in your fellowship with those who are believers and growing in your speaking and displaying the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. Those are things that we all agree about. You don't have to be a certain denomination. All followers of Jesus believe these things, right? 
And so here's the first principle. The principle is this. God's grace allows me to be a manager of what I have been given. God's grace allows me, allows you to be a manager of what you have been given. This is the most fundamental and essential teaching on money that you will ever find in the Bible. And if we don't accept or agree with this, we will never biblically manage our resources. Psalms 24 verse 1 says this, the earth is the Lord's and some of it. No, right? <laughs> just, just trying to see if you pay attention. The earth is the Lord's and guess what it says? And everything in it, the world and some of the people belong to him. No, no. All the people belong to him. This means, catch this, this is, I've thought long and hard on how to make this catchy and memorable. This is very pastorally, so hopefully this will stick, okay? I want you to, somebody to say amen or just at least be slightly impressed or at least fake it, okay? This means everything I own is on a loan. Ah, okay, dad joke. Everything I own is on a loan. Everything you own is on a loan. Everything I own is on a loan. My house, vehicles, clothes, bank accounts, uh, my Star Trek Next Generation collector's card set <laughs> that I've had for like 40 years. They all belong to God, okay? They all belong to God. Some of you are like, wow, he's a big nerd. Let's keep moving. There's the rest of this message going on. James 1.17 says this, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Who does not change like the shifting shadows. You see, when you understand that everything you have is because of the grace of God, you will recognize that God is truly the owner of all you possess and that he has entrusted you to manage it. In other words, everything you own is what? On a on a loan. Here's the second principle. Contentment is a result of discipline, not a result of more. Contentment is a result of discipline, not of more. You see, our culture is constantly making us aware of all that we don't have. That's called advertising. <laughs> That's the main goal of advertising. You don't have this, and you need it. Oh my goodness, I didn't know I need that. I should go get one. That's what our culture has been. It, it, it's, and I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing. It's an is thing. But listen, the discipline of contentment is to look at what you do have and choose to be thankful for it first. And then look at what you've been given rather than after chasing what you don't have as a source for being content. I think this is what Paul was trying to explain to a young pastor he was mentoring when he wrote this in a letter. In 1 Timothy, he says this, 6, verse 6 to 8, true godliness with contentment itself is great wealth or great gain. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. This is an incredible perspective on true wealth. But the problem is that it's very difficult to practice the discipline of contentment in our culture because our culture does such a great job of making us aware of all the things we could and should have. But what does the Scripture want us to be aware of? That's the question. 
We could argue back and forth whether what culture is trying to push on us is right or wrong and what's good, what's okay. We could, we could, we could have that argument. But the argument, that the thing we really need to wrestle with is not what about culture is right and where does it fall like. Here's the question we need to ask. What does the scripture want us to be aware of? Here's what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote a little later in that same letter, and I think he gives us a clue to what it is that we should really wrestle with. First Timothy 6, verse 17, it says this, teach those who are rich in this world, I don't have time to make the case, uh, if you want, we can have coffee and I can prove it to you, we're all rich, okay? We're all rich, just so you know. I know you probably don't feel like it, but we're all rich. So this is us. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in who or what? The Lord. Who, he doesn't just stop there. He lets us know why we can trust this God who richly gives us all we need not just so we can make it. He says this, for our enjoyment. That's crazy. When you take a balanced look at that, now if you go off the deep end with like prosperity gospel, they'll say, our enjoyment is the goal. So if you don't enjoy life, then you need to take more of it, right? You're like, okay, well, you didn't read the whole verse. All right, come on. Even I knew that. But the idea that God is rich in grace and rich towards you, not even just to give you what you need so you can feel like, okay, I got what I need, but for that, you can feel that God has, takes pleasure in you and your enjoyment. And so the question is this, are you practicing the discipline of contentment by choosing to place your trust in God? Because that is where you're going to find the joy, the enjoyment, the contentment that you're looking for in your life, I promise you. Or are you driven to constantly acquire more? Because if you are driven to continually acquire, it will impact your ability to live generously. The point is that when you come to grips with who God is and all he's done for you, when you understand the extravagant grace that has been extended to you, then the natural outflow of a life blessed by God's grace is a generous life. The question is then, what does generosity for the follower of Christ look like? So I'm going to get super practical, and I have three Ps, right? I did the all you own is on a loan. This is very pastoral today. I got three Ps that I was taught that honestly have made a significant impact on the way Leona and I have practiced the discipline of amplifying God's grace in our lives through generosity over the years. And so I, everything I'm saying, is this is, this is not like a, a, a suggestion that like, this is something that we practice. And it has made it a world of difference. And we learned it from other people that we believe have thriving spiritual lives. They taught it to us, our mentors, either as our parents or uh, people that we look up to who have strong relationships with the Lord. And these three things seem to follow all of those who had thriving relationships with God. And by the way, you also find them in Scripture, so I guess that's a good reason too. But first is this, the idea of priority giving. What do I mean by that? This means that in your life, you figure out how to give back to God first. The writer of Proverbs says this in Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Uh, literally in the Hebrew there, it's the first fruits. 
So you, you get a harvest, and before you figure out either how you're going to spend or sell, or you take it and you already set it aside, and you give it, and you give the best to the Lord. That was how they did it in that agricultural society. And as we think about it nowadays, what does that mean? Well, for most people, I'll answer that, but listen, for most people, whenever we get paid or have any type of income, for most people in general in the world, here's what we do. We get it, and we go, <laughs> and then we spend it. And then we go, oh, I probably should save a little. And then after we've done that, we uh, find ourselves going, maybe I should be generous. I don't know. What do I got left? <sighs> okay, uh, maybe next paycheck. <laughs> And what we discover in the scriptures is that the script has been actually flipped. In the scriptures, you'll see followers of God giving first, and then saving, actually, and then spending anything you have left. We do this for our kids. They have three jars in their house, in our house, each of them. Spend, give, save jar. It's what our parents taught us. That's why... I have never not been a, uh, what, we, what I'll call a, a biblical tither, whole life. I've been one. So I really don't struggle with this idea of tithing because my parents taught it to me. They modeled it for me. And so God has always provided for us when we've lived on the part that we've entrusted, that has been entrusted to us by God. But from a spiritual perspective, here's the thing. Every time you give to God first, you actually communicate faith in God. And for those of you who struggle with the idea of giving to God first, you actually get it. It takes a lot of faith. Because some of you are like, I, I have nothing to give. I, I feel like I have nothing to give. And in fact, when you give to God first, you're saying, God, because I want my trust to be in you and not in my money, I am going to give to you before I spend anything on me. And then I'm going to go and trust you that I can live on the rest. Now, let me be clear. Spontaneous generosity isn't bad. And I don't want to talk about this too much, but we just have to address this. In fact, spontaneous generosity where you kind of like give when their need comes, right? That's spontaneous. Like, oh, someone's in need. Oh, I give and I, I give. That's not bad. In fact, that is commonplace for the person who has made generosity a priority in their life. However, the thing about spontaneous giving is that while it blesses the one receiving it, spontaneous giving does not do much to change the heart of one who is giving so that they are more and more like Jesus over time. This is why since the beginning of the church, when followers of Christ give back to God through their local church, it's called an act of worship. And just like it would be weird for you to say, like, I just worship whenever I, you know, need to. No, we, we build the discipline of worship, just like you build the discipline of prayer, the discipline of studying the Scripture. That's what should be happening. You know, it's a moment of gratitude that says, God, I realize that everything I have comes from you. My giving is in recognition of that fact. This is an act of worship. And so giving to God first, making a decision to do that, is an act of worship. And that's something that I've seen every person who's practiced generosity, biblical generosity in their life have done. Second is this, percentage giving. And I've kind of alluded to this. And this is giving based on income, not on expense. 
where your giving is measured based on your income, not on your expense. In other words, it's not how much you give. That's whether you give 100 or 1,000. That doesn't speak to anything about your generosity. It's just a number. Because they're like, if I made a million dollars and I gave $100, that's different than someone who only makes $100 that gives $100. Wouldn't you agree? Right? That's, in fact, Jesus talked about that in a, in, a, in a parable that we'll look at in a second. But the concept of giving based on percentage was something every God-fearing Jew understood and practiced. And by the way, if you didn't know this, Jesus grew up in a home that were is, you know, God-fearing Jewish people. <laughs> so, so this is what, this is the context that Jesus came into and he preached to most people that he preached to. This, he didn't have to argue this because everyone believed this. In fact, here's the part of the scripture that they all grew up hearing in Deuteronomy 14. It says this, 1422, you must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all the crops you harvest each year. Bring this tithe to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored, and eat it there in his presence. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, oil, firstborn of your males, your flocks, and herds. Doing this, here's the reason why you do it. Doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord. Now, I understand there's a lot of debate on how much a Christian is to be obligated to live under the Old Testament laws, and I'm not trying to make a statement that we are to now base all of our theologies on simply just the Old Testament. That would be very, very unwise. Uh, and, but the truth is this, when Jesus came, there was not much talk about the tithe. There wasn't, that, that, that wasn't Jesus' subtle, when, when Jesus talked about the tithe, he, because he didn't talk about it that much, it wasn't like a subtle way of saying to people that followed him that they were off the hook when it came to being generous. Like, just because Jesus, we don't have a recording of him talking about it uh, as much as we would like, but by the way, he actually talked about giving more than heaven and, and hell combined. But anyways, that's a thing for a different story. In fact, if you read the New Testament understanding of generosity, you'll come to learn that the early church believed that they had received, here's what's even more compelling, the early church believed that they had received more of God's grace in their lives than anyone previous to the life of Jesus here on earth. They believed that God's grace through Jesus, God allowing his one and only son, Jesus, to be crucified, murdered, buried, and then powerfully being raised by God from the dead three days later, that this was the greatest display of grace the world had ever and will ever, ever see again. They believed that, and as a result, they believed that they were to amplify this grace not only within their own lives, but throughout the world. In other words, they displayed even more generosity than what was required according to the Old Testament. And here's what's so great about percentage giving. Giving, percentage giving, is the most accurate way to measure generosity. When you give based on a percentage, your generosity is not measured by the amount you give, but based on the amount that you've been blessed with. As I said before, Jesus taught about this in Mark chapter 12. It says this, sitting across the temple treasury, Jesus watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Can you imagine this? Like, then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, the underlying tone there was, something is happening, and this is a lesson. They're not seeing this. I'm going to tell them to come over here. Hey, Peter, James, 
get over here. I want to teach you something. What does he teach his disciples? He says this, truly I tell you. And they were like, well, hopefully you wouldn't falsely tell me, Jesus, but okay, I guess truly I tell you. So he's really trying to make a statement here. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. And I was like, what? There's two mites. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Oh, Phil, you're telling me to give all that I have, everything I live on? No, no, that's not, the, that's not the point of this. Jesus was teaching on how m- generosity is measured in the kingdom, in the economy of heaven. Because before Jesus, every follower of God practiced percentage giving, which involves giving away a percentage of everything you receive right off the top as soon as you get it. That's because percentage giving is the most accurate way to give sacrificially. Practically speaking, I know people who have given, who, who have given 10% as part of their spiritual disciplines. And listen, I have never per- met a person who's gone, you know what, I have totally regretted that whole 10% thing. That was stupid. Like, I, worst thing, I, I got my, the wool pulled over my eyes. Never have heard anyone say that. Because those who go beyond what is experienced more and more in their life, uh, oh, those who go, and, and here's the thing, those who go beyond that, beyond the 10% giving, here's what happens in their lives as I've watched that. And as we've seen this even in our own lives. You experience more and more blessings in your life, and that's what is called the third P. And I know I've got to wrap this up. I'm sorry. Can you give me a few more minutes? Is that okay? Progressive giving. So say you decide that maybe 10% seems too much, and you start at 1% a year, okay? Let's just get super practical on this. Progressive giving means that you'll be committing to giving more and more strategically each year. One year you give 1%, maybe the next year you give 1.25. But whatever it is that you're progressively learning what it means to practice the discipline of contentment, but also the discipline of showing God that you are a manager and that you want him to teach you what it means to be content. And why is progressive giving important? Mainly because it's the primary way, listen to this, it's the primary way we combat greed. Uh, In his book, Enemies of the Heart, one pastor writes some observations based on Jesus' teaching about greed in probably one of the most straightforward ways that I've heard it. And uh, he's a better writer than I am speaker, so I'm just going to read this to you. If you've allowed your lifestyle to keep lockstep with or surpass your income you'll find it next to impossible to keep greed from taking root in your heart. You've got to give to the point that it forces you to adjust your lifestyle. If you're not willing to give to the point that it impacts your lifestyle, then according to Jesus, you're greedy. If you're consuming to the point of having little or nothing left to give, you're greedy. If you're consuming and saving to the point that there's little or nothing to give, you're greedy. I know that's strong. Actually, it's harsh but it's true, which is probably the reason why I'm reading it and just saying it to you so you can blame me for saying that I've been harsh. But anyways, he goes on. Greed is evidenced not by how you feel, but by what you do. Generous feelings and good intentions don't compensate for a greedy heart. In fact, good intentions and greed can cohabit in your heart indefinitely. This is what makes this covert enemy such a threat to the heart. I know for some that $320,000 sounds like a lot, sounds like a crazy goal. Some people have 20-year mortgages that are like around that number. (laughs) I get it, 20-year mortgages. 
And so it makes sense to feel like raising that in three years is crazy, but it's not for two reasons. One, our efforts to give sacrificially together not only has a compounding effect, but it also has a multiplying effect. As we commit together to engage in 100% participation towards this Amplify campaign, I believe God will multiply our efforts, not just compound them, not just add them together. Why? Because this is the kind of God we serve. Jesus took water and not only made it wine, but what did he do? He made it the best wine. Jesus took two loaves and five fishes and did what? He fed 5,000 people. He just didn't break them into itty-bitty parts. No, he multiplied them. And there's no reason to believe that God will not multiply our first steps of commitment towards joining our efforts to do our best to pursue the mission of God already accomplished in this church. In fact, here's what I'm most excited to tell you about. God already has. You want some good news? I know we talk about money. I want to give you some good news. Here's the second reason it's not crazy to believe that God would allow us to raise $320,000 in three years. A few weeks ago, we had informational reading, meetings called our pie meetings, you know, pastoral informational exchange, but we also ate pie. And uh, I told those who had attended, I had some good news that I would be sharing soon. And today is the day. Back in, some of you might remember you were here, back in December of 2019, December of 2019, believe that, we began talking as a church about this capital campaign. In fact, we actually had a church meeting, remember over there, we had a church meeting to vote on hiring a capital campaign consultant to help us with this process, as was told we should do by you know, all of our church mentors, the pastors, like, you, you really got to get a consultant for the first time because you don't know what you don't know. And so we was like, all right, this is the wise thing we do. We, we said we we're going to do that. We, we voted on that because it wasn't part of our budget, but we said, let's do it. And here was, here's what's crazy. After we took that first step as a church, I don't think, I, I've only told some people this, so you might not even know this. Someone heard about this vision. They're not part of our church. They heard about this vision to pursue a permanent launching pad for ministry for clarity. And that same month, we received the most significant one-time donation our church has ever received. Has ever received. And also, gets better, because of the generous and sacrificial giving of a very small number, it's a very small number of people, who accidentally came to find out that we opened up a special fund in preparation for this Amplify campaign. Some of you know who you are. You accidentally found it. I didn't tell anyone about it, but you started, you found it, and you're like, oh, a giving, a building fund? I want to give to that. Some of you did it, and you gave, and in the beginning of 2020, when we were preparing for this fund, you know, for this capital campaign that we were going to be launching in May, but something happened in March that changed our plans. Listen, some people started giving and have not stopped giving to that. And so in addition to the one-time giving we've got, we received, 